Well, welcome to the United on Wheels podcast. I am your host, Paul Amadeus Lane. So happy to have you on this edition of our show. There's some amazing things that we are going to talk about and have some amazing guests join us. But before we start, remember, always go to our website, unitedspinal.org. You can find out some great things that can keep you informed about things that are going on. If you want to join a chapter, you can do that. You can find out about our tech access group and many things that we are involved in. So without any further delay, I'm going to bring on some amazing people to talk about some things that they do with United Spinal. And I'm going to let them explain to you what they do and who they are. Kay, why don't you tell everybody what you do over United Spinal? Um, so my name is Kay Pearson and I work for uh, Accessibility Services, which is a program of United Spinal. And um, I am also joined with Marsha Maz and Dom Marinelli. So I will let them introduce themselves. Um, Marsh, do you want to go next? Sure. I'm Marsha Maz and that is Maz, M-A-Z-Z, like jazz. And uh, I have been working for United Spinal for about two years. And before that, I worked for the U.S. Access Board for about 30 years. Tom? Thank you. Now, I feel like I've been with EPVA my entire working adult life because I have been with United Spinal and previously EPVA almost my entire professional career. I started... Um, in the late 80s, Marsha and Kay, not a word from you. Um, and um, we have really developed what Kay introduced as our accessibility services program uh, in my time. So again, there's only, I don't know if you guys know this or if I can be conversational like this, but there's only one person in the organization now that Jim Weissman has retired that's been with the organization um, longer than me, and it's somebody out of the New Hampshire office who has a few years on me who does some of our fundraising work. So, Marsha, I am close to the top of the, it's just because I'm old is what it is, but I'm close to the top now that Jim retired. I love it. I love it. And, and welcome, welcome uh, all you to the, to the program. And, and what's funny before we jump into really the mix of what we're going to talk about today, a funny Jim Wiseman story. It's funny uh, to hear Judy Human and also Lex Friedman uh, talk about their, their their fondest memories of Jim Wiseman. It, it is so funny. Jim is like an amazing person. I uh, love Jim, and he is just so awesome. And, and I'm sure all you have wonderful Jim stories, too. We could spend like three hours on the show to talk about it. But well, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do is really highlight just the amazing things that the ACS has done. Um, if you can, uh, give us a history of the program uh, when it started and, and even the 75th anniversary theme that we have going on right now. How is the mission continuing on even today? Well, sure. L let me start and Kay and Marsh jump in. But, you know, you talk about um, the start of it. And when I started with the organization again in the late 80s, when I went to the New York office for the first time, it was all of these accessibility hall of famers, you know, um, for, for those of you that don't know, the original idea of the department was started by a man named Terry Moakley. 
And Terry was very active in developing accessibility standards. And that's really how it started. And I kind of joined the department that Terry had already started. Terry was already working on the New York City Building Code and its accessibility requirements. Um, and the organization had been steeped in developing accessibility requirements. Uh, before I came on, I was telling Kay and Marsha that uh, one of the department members when I first started had the first accessibility standard um, that our organization ever worked on, which was the 1961 ANSI standard. Um, and he like was so, you know, loved this old accessibility standard that we were involved with. Marsha, I think it was about 12 pages. I have it here, but yeah. you might tell you might tell the group how big the ANSI standard is now that in, in your work on that. But the original one was not that detailed. Well, um, the the ANSI standard is is hundreds of pages now, along with the building code. And um, when I first started in this business, the building code had one paragraph about accessibility, and that was it. Nothing more, and it was uh, it, it was pathetic. <laughs> um, but it's it's huge now. You know what? And you both bring up a very good a very good starting point for our discussion. You know, I've been disabled for twenty eight years. Just had my twenty eighth anniversary a few weeks ago, and it, some of the things that 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 I didn't realize uh, that that you guys were able to to put into practice that benefited me throughout my, my injury. Um, we need to brag about that even more. So talk about just some of those, those accomplishments that, that you guys were able to, able to enact that they really benefit us even, even till today. Oh, well, let, Marsh, let me set you up for, for a few of these. Um, again, always the strong president in code development and Marsha, was the absolute best in the country of getting accessibility requirements and improvements passed in the national accessibility standard or in the building codes. Um, I mean, you know, she would go up there and when I first met Marsha, like these code hearings, sometimes there's thousands and thousands of people in the audience and I was so nervous to like discuss my proposal and you have to do it in such a way so that the voting membership will understand it and approve it and or disapprove it. And Marsha would be able to get up there and really advocate um, on the rights for people with disabilities um, and our members. And it was just, if I wish you guys could see it because it was just so classic in my memory that I'll always take sometimes other entities don't want accessibility improvements. Um, they don't want to because sometimes accessibility improvements and codes cost money, cost square footage. And Marsha was always so great about like putting it in perspective with that success rate of getting things done. Um, the, the one thing, Marsha, that I'd love to talk about is how we were successful in getting um, accessibility requirements in existing residential projects that were mm -hmm. undergoing alterations. And the reason that's important is prior to that initiative, you were only really getting accessibility requirements in apartments, in residential projects, in new construction, 
new construction being defined as something that was built for first occupancy after March of 91. Well, there are tons of buildings that were built before then, tons of buildings that were undergoing renovations um, and didn't have anything, any requirements to comply with. And I would say, Marsha, and you might have others, but that was my favorite thing that we have been able to do as a group. Well, I remember back when we, uh, when I was working for the Access Board, and we decided to try and get something into the codes because we weren't working on the ADA standards at the time, and we were working on, uh, we were working with the codes, and there was an opportunity to get the family uh, toilet rooms in the building code. You know, the ones you see in the airports and other places. And that, that was actually uh, something that Judy Human was pushing with the access board because she wanted to make it possible for people with an uh, opposite sex caregiver to go, be able to go in and, and into a restroom and not have to you know, apologize to all the other people for bringing someone of the opposite sex into the bathroom and all of that. And um, so we, we actually went to the codes and I remember it was one of the first times I, I worked with the codes and basically I, I said to them, well, we're going to offer you this opportunity to put this in the building code. And if you don't, we'll just put it in the ADA standards. And because the building officials and building folks did not want to see more federal regulation, they they jumped up and 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 really worked collaboratively with us, and and we got it done, and we got it in all of the model building codes, and it's been actually uh, a requirement across the country for years now in larger facilities, uh, you, you know, most commonly you see them at airports and sports stadiums and places like that. I, I love that. Because so. I know when you and I talked <laughs> earlier, I talked about my experience with family uh, restaurants, uh, restaurants, restrooms, <laughs> and, uh, and and how my wife helps me out, you know, when we go places mm -hmm. and, and I tell you, it, it really, really, really helps out the family restroom. And and when we, when, when we look at just how much ground you guys have covered over the years and you look at some of the um, the pushback or uh, the blowback that you guys have gotten over the years how did you deal with overcoming those challenges without without giving up well listen i marcia yeah go ahead marcia i'm sorry that's okay i was just going to say as a as a federal employee for so long i had a you know a, a slightly different role um, but working with United Spinal, um, I'm kind of resting on the laurels of, of, of people like Dominic, who, who was doing the work with the codes before me, and Brian Black and Terry Moakley and others. And I think that it, United Spinal has developed a, a really strong repu reputation within the codes development community of being uh, an advocate for accessibility, of being the go-to people to, to help get something accomplished in the building codes that uh, the community values. And, and I don't wanna make um, little of, of the getting the existing building code, uh, the, the existing 
residential units in, in the building code, that was huge. Um, it, it truly was because it goes far beyond the federal law. And so it is a, a real accomplishment and it took a lot of persuading, not just the two minute testimony that you get up there and give, but you know, the, the buttonholing people in the back of the room and, and saying, look, we really need your support on this. And, and also bringing people with disabilities to code hearings to tell their own stories. And, and Paul, nobody works the room like Marsha works the room. And I would tell you that what she's trying to say is she tries to break it down into components of the needed change or the needed code. And she tries to relate that to somebody's elderly parent, somebody's family member with a disability, that type of thing. And it really, really is effective and it really works. Um, you know, as we were thinking about different items to talk about, uh, and, and we're working on the enforcement of this, but Paul, we were successful and Marcia in the lead with uh, in, in hotels. And in, in Cave, whose significant other is a United Spinal member, benefits from hotel beds and accessible guest rooms that are raised in. I love getting that into the accessibility standards. It was generated by a United Spinal member. And Marsh, you could probably do a better job of explaining why we wanted the clear the, the opening beneath beds. Okay, well, um, there's there's two issues with beds. And and I think we've dealt with both of them pretty well. One is these dug on high beds that that they put in hotels that are so high you can't transfer onto onto the bed. And so people are going into hotels and begging management to come and take the mattress off the frame and put it on the floor. And then you're paying top dollar to stay in a hotel where you get to sleep on the floor, uh, which is crazy. And the other issue is if you travel with a, a you know personal lift and you need space underneath the bed in order to get your, um, your, your, your lift under the bed, a lot of these beds are boxed, you know, boxed in on the bottom because they don't want to vacuum under the bed. So they, they, they don't have an opening and you can't use your lift. So it was actually an EPVA or a United Spinal member who brought this is issue forward years ago, years and years ago. And he had actually managed to get uh, a bed height law written into New Jersey and Florida codes. So actually, we, we just capitalized on his work, brought that work forward to the National Model Building Codes, and they weren't happy about doing it. And they weren't happy about doing it because building inspectors generally don't look at furniture. You know, they look at how the building is constructed. They look at your doorways and your toilet fixtures and all of that stuff, but they don't want to have to come back after the, the occupants have moved in and check out furniture. But they did put it in. And so we are very grateful for that. And um, it did take a lot of tweaking. One thing that I'm hoping to bring forward in this next round 
is a requirement that you not have uh, just your one accessible table in a restaurant and a field of tall tables. And Kay, maybe you can talk about uh, you know your experience with those tall tables. Uh, you, you and Kenny, uh, how that how that works and who doesn't work for you guys? Yeah. So. Um... As mentioned, Kenny is a, is a member of United Spinal. He's paraplegic and uses a wheelchair full time. And the thing that's kind of hard is that you don't want to like put the wheelchair symbol on every single table that is accessible. But a lot of times people can't identify what are the accessible features in a space. Like, you know, the accessible stall because it's so obvious, right? But other things, it makes it a little bit more difficult. Like, for example, um, you know, accessible sinks, you need to have like the pipe protection, the pipe insulation around it. But a lot of times people may not recognize that that's a feature. And you don't know that that's the accessible sink that, that should be maintained as an accessible feature. Um, but with Kenny, he was a bartender prior to injury. And one of the biggest problems is that the culture of bars is very different than the culture of a sit down restaurant. And, you know, we still get invited out by all of his friends from before, but it's just a different environment when literally everyone, you know, he jokes that he's three foot four now, you know, he's a six foot man, but he, he's like, oh, I'm three feet now. And, you know, that's a very true lived experience of that. And so whenever we go out, there is either they've already sat a family at the one accessible table in the entire place. And then you have to awkwardly be like, hey, do you mind just like moving the table over so that we can eat? Um, or other times like he will like, sit next to the table that's not accessible and like try to make it work. And then it stands out even more obviously that like the space was not designed for him or other people like him. Um, but I think Marsha's efforts in this space um, is really important because it doesn't, it doesn't preclude the enjoyment of other people, right? It's, it's just a design that fits the needs of more users. And so if we have a space that includes that and, you know, fixtures and furnishings and things like that at the time of installation, it is not that more expensive, right? So if you kind of get them at these critical moments where you can say, yes, the requirement is only one, at least one or 5% or whatever, then and you just say, there's really no problem with including more. And, uh, and oftentimes the tabletop is the same. It's just that they're picking the pedestal ones, which then prevent access, roll on or access, but the tabletop dimensions are identical, but if you had a different support system for that, then they would become accessible. And so it's also just kind of educating them about their interior design choices. And so I'm gonna pass it back to Marcia so she can she can talk about that. But I think the-, yeah, the we, We're trying. And you know what, Marsha, before you go there, because it kind of really, really does tell into this next critical question right there kind of goes hand in hand. And that is training and consulting on, on projects and, and how it's critical to improving like universal design, ensuring wheelchair users like myself and many have access to different opportunities. Uh, maybe when it comes to rehab, community transition, healthcare, employment, recreation, social life, dot, dot, dot. So. So, Marsha, please, please help us to understand that. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say we're, we're trying to get this into the national code so that it will go nationwide. But we have already succeeded in getting it into a supplemental accessibility standard for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which actually, you know, has control over a lot of 
uh, restaurants and, and other places that are in their properties. So for those of you who are in the New York area, maybe you'll begin to see a little better integration in, in the restaurants uh, that Port Authority controls. And hopefully that will send a message um, that, that it, it certainly can be done because it's the high top tables where you sit in your little small low table and you get to look at everybody's hip, but you can't see their face because they're all so much higher than you are. Um, in terms of, of just bringing this, you know, bringing this full circle, um, we, we really are um, advocates at heart. Every single person in ACS is an advocate. And in terms of training, um, we, we try very hard to, to convince people to do the right thing. And, and hey, you're doing the training on the supplemental requirements for Port Authority. Maybe you want to cover what your agenda is there and what you're trying to, to, to convey. So I think, um, you know, the, we try very hard to humanize code, right, or humanize requirements or, and things like that, because a lot of times um, when you're working with a, a group that is just like it's a construction group or it's an architecture firm, um, they understand the requirements, but they don't they don't always understand like the end user and why that requirement exists. So they'll be able to rattle it off and say, yes, we need to have 18 inches of pull side clearance on a door beyond the latch, but they don't really understand the mechanics of someone that needs that. And so one of the things that I always champion in my, in my trainings is that if you do not know someone who uses a wheelchair or you do not know someone that needs accessible features, the access board has these really great, um, animations that show how people maneuver through space. And so I oftentimes will tie it back to that because it kind of, it lets them, it sinks in a little bit differently where it's like, oh, the reason why that's there is because when someone uses a wheelchair and has to open up the door, they have to move their body outside of the swing of the door, which then creates that space. And that's why they need to have that room. And so a lot of the trains that we do, are a little bit different than what you know, United Spinal does a lot of disability etiquette, right? Of like, how do you interact with people with disabilities in a way that um, is respectful to them and, and not making situations awkward when they don't need to be. The thing that we kind of focus on is a little bit more about like, these are the requirements and, and we're teaching those requirements. We're always tying it back to the end user and why it matters and that you're not, we're not just like being sticklers for no reason, you know, and oftentimes like I try not to use Kenny as an example all the time because I don't want to, um, I don't think it should be attached to a single person and a single person's experience, but there is something about like when we're working with people who are designing hotels and I talk about like, you know, in our relationship at home, Kenny is able to be significantly more independent than when we go into a hotel. And every time we go, there's something new that we're, we're encountering. That's a barrier that we weren't expecting. And, and then it's just sort of like, then you have to do that mental calculation of, do you want to be the person that complains or do you want to be the person that just kind of makes do? And then how does that help the next person who comes behind you? But then Am I teaching them that anyone who has a disability or is connected to somebody with a disability, all they do is complain, you know, and it's just like you just do all these mental gymnastics of things where it's like, 
is this a big enough deal? Is this not a big enough deal? Like, what am I telling? Like, what am I teaching people? Because this might be the only person that they're interacting with that has a disability in six months. And this interaction is now going to be much more meaningful than if they had somebody every single day staying in that room that uses a wheelchair. And so there's like, there's this kind of this moment, like this moment of like, teaching the critical information that they need in order to be successful in their work, but then also being that, that person that connects them to the community if they don't already have a connection themselves. And, um, and so I, I don't, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to say, I, I, I have exactly the same feeling. I, I don't like to have to justify my work in this field at, because I'm a person with a disability, although I am. Um, but at the same time, I think as a person with a disability, not a mobility disability, but I'm legally blind, um, I think it, it, it makes a huge difference in, in that we are able to, to convey the, the, the importance of accessibility and, and in ways that a lot of Companies that do similar work that we do just can't do um, because they don't have any personal experience. Many of them don't know people with disability. Um, and they may be wonderful at what they do, but they, they, you know, if I'm not sure about something, I've got 100 people that I can call up and say, okay, would you would be brokenhearted if bathtubs disappeared from hotels, for example. Um, because there's right now there's some consideration of just saying that hotels can have all showers. And, and right now, the standards say you can have, you have to have some showers, but you have to have some other type of bathing fixture. And so now I've got a lot of people I can call up and I can say, okay, what's what do you think about this? Where, you know, is, is there really a purpose for a bathtub? When I look at an accessible bathtub, I see it as a really lousy transfer shower with a huge wall that <laughs> you've got to get your legs over somehow. And so my, my personal thought is it's not a very accessible fixture, no matter what you do to it. But there might be people who find it that a bathtub is, is something that they want. Okay, is it something that you want in your home? Would you use one in a hotel? I wouldn't, <laughs> <laughs> for sanitary reasons. Um, but you know, these are the, we can always, as United States, we that. can always turn to our constituents. Dom, you know, you, you, you've oh, done a lot man, of work right. with advisory committees. You sure. have an advisory and committee for a lot of your projects. Definitely. And I was that thanks for setting me up with that. I wasn't thinking about that. But when you talked about getting input, valuable input for projects, um, I started to think about like our work on sports stadiums and sports venues. Uh, Paul, what's your what's your favorite sport? I would say my favorite store sport is between baseball and football. Me too, my friend. Amen. And I hope we can be friends beyond this because those are, I, I try, I try to like other things, but like, I, I just, that's mine. And um, I will tell you that what Marsha and Kay are talking about, absolutely. 
comes to fruition when we're doing a large project and we invite United Spinal members to participate or members of the community with disabilities to participate in projects, amazing things happen. And uh, one of my favorites is U.S. Bank Stadium. It's in Minneapolis. And we had the United Spinal members involved in that. And Marsha, the reason why I wanted to, you made me think about this is the group had things that they'd wanted to see in that stadium that weren't requirements, but just made so much sense that we got them in the project and Marsha got them in the code later on. And one of the simplest things is um, cup holders at wheelchair spaces, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It, go, it goes without saying that, Paul, you're going to want, God help me for saying it, a beer during that event, right? The, the people <laughs> wanted to plug in, people wanted to plug in their devices. They needed electrical receptacles within the wheelchair spaces in this huge stadium. And we got it. And Marsha, if I'm not mistaken, there's a code requirement for it now. Wow. Um, yeah as well yeah. you know and and i uh, don't get me chatting about this because it happens all the time yankee stadium paul where, where do you live i'm are you in new york i'm a dodger fan so i'm la la boy oh yeah i won't even tell you but certainly the angels was my project um i don't i think they're not called they're called the los angeles angels of anaheim I now i remember that project happened too i had no idea dom you were on that project well, you know, it, it assembly areas, and we have a great friend who's a great advocate, who's an expert in the stadium assembly, a guy named Ed Rother, uh, Paul, Ed's son, Nathan works for us. And uh, when we do these projects, you're definitely getting input. Yeah. I think this was Yankee Stadium. This is City Field. This is all of our projects. Somebody said, and, and it wasn't a wheelchair user, somebody wanted an assisted listening device at a ticket window. All right. Well, we take it for granted. For Paul, for you, we would be double checking that the height of the window, the ticket window is lower. But what about if you're deaf or have a hearing disability? In these projects and in the code, one ticket window has to be has to have an assisted listening device where the sound, um, the voice of the ticket seller is amplified in the ear of the person, the, the fan with the hearing disability. That's the kind of things that we're getting out of this. And, you know, um, that's just one example of, of what you're taking uh, from advisory groups or United Spinal members in these projects. I love it. And Dom, the reason why I love it is because all of us come in, in different shapes and sizes. I'm six foot six. I'm over 300 plus pounds. So it's nice when I go somewhere and it fits my body type and my, my wheelchair size. Uh, because back in the days uh, when I first got injured, it was smaller doors. Now they're wider doors. Uh, yep. Heads and everything. So that really just, I'm sure everyone listening uh, to this right now, who's part of our community are just like applauding all the work that you guys have done, because we look at some of the advancements in the strides. It is truly, truly just breathtaking. And, and looking at all this, where are things that, that still need to be fixed um, that, that you guys can think of? 
Well, if K don't, I, I, I think certainly for this time in our lives, you know, in COVID and accessibility issues are so, per, you know, so impacting our daily lives. And I think they will be for the future. Um, and so I definitely wanted to bring up COVID and accessibility, or at least ask Kay to throw her experience with COVID and accessibility and the things that she's done behind this and how that's kind of lending your efforts, Kay, are kind of lending to universal design principles um, for future requirements. Sure. I mean, so the thing is, is that like the ADA is, is very broad, right? And it's meant to be anti-discrimination law and it's supposed to be in perpetuity. So it's for things that we haven't even possibly imagined yet. It's still supposed to cover it and it's still supposed to integrate. So it's, it's not supposed to be you know, reactive, it's supposed to be proactive, but oftentimes enforcement is reactive, right? Where you see a problem, you try to educate about it, you try to eliminate it, and then unfortunately that doesn't happen. So then you have to kind of make a bigger, bigger stink about it. But one of the things that we were noticing very early on with COVID was that businesses were rapidly trying to incorporate all of the shifting guidance and it came at a cost. Um, and typically what that was is that it eliminated, um, you know, uh, opportunities for people with disabilities or it created barriers that weren't there before. So one of the things that we did is we created a guidance for businesses because um, during the lockdown, everything was, you know, mostly everything was closed. But when businesses started to reopen, we wanted to provide that guidance for them that says, we understand the constraints that you're within, that you have to respond to the shifting guidance from the CDC, from your local governments, from your community needs, all this other stuff. But we also want you to remember that you have an obligation to maintain your accessible features. And that's why I kind of mentioned earlier about the sync is that not everyone knows out of a string of three or four sinks, which one is the accessible sink. If it's a lowered one, you know, there might be a, you know, a visual clue for that. But a lot of times, like you'll just have one that has pipe protection. And in the beginning, what they were trying to do is they were trying to eliminate people being side by side using features, right? So you would alternate sinks and you would say, you can use this one, but you can't use that one. And inadvertently, they might remove the one that had the pipe protection. And that would either uh, lead to skin breaks for someone nailing underneath or also temperature regulation issues, right? So the COVID guidance was like, okay, we're... Most of this is, is centered around personal behaviors, like maintaining distance, wearing a mask, don't showing up, like don't show up when you're sick, you know, and, uh, you know, sanitize things more oftenly and frequently. Um, but we wanted to put a disability lens on it. So when you're talking about like increasing sanitation, we wanted to draw attention to people that have chemical sensitivities. And so um, we, you know, we let them know like which of these um, products might be safer to more people. Um, we also talked about like, we weren't really sure if part of their, um, their when they're cleaning, that they recognize that braille on side is something that's a high touch area or handrails um, exterior to the property um, and these kind of things. So we were just sort of like, okay, just remember that when you're doing this also include the high touch areas. Maybe you want to have hand sanitizers at both ends of a ramp so that once I get past the ramp, I can, you know, I can sanitize my hands and move on. Um, we talked a lot about how accessible parking was being 
converted for other uses. And so you used to have an accessible parking. I see Paul rolling his eyes, but you would have the parking spaces converted to outdoor seating. You would have it be converted to takeout only. And um, you cannot convert that use for another purpose, particularly at the exclusion of others. And so it's about, I don't know, we try to keep it like a, a reasonable amount that wasn't overwhelming, right? So I think it was about like 10 to 13 pages of like written content. And then at the end we had, um, you know, diagrams that showed what are the accessible features? Like, you know, earlier I mentioned people know an accessible stall, they know accessible parking, but they don't necessarily know um, and what an accessible table looks like, how to make sure that your counters, is, counters are accessible even when you're trying to maintain distance. Um, and so we kind of gave them guidance of like, this is how you can comply with COVID restrictions and also still open in a way that's uh, that's accessible to you know more people. Um, and so you know we did a, a, a webinar about it, um, and so we've kind of just tried to put out a lot of things about that. And the idea there is, is just you can't get you can't get comfortable with the idea that you're accessible and level of accessibility is always going to exist. There's always going to be something that's shifting where they kind of come under attack and you have to push back and say, okay, you know, we, we now have this in the code, but it doesn't mean anything if people aren't operating it in a way that also makes sure that services is done in an inclusive, integrated and accessible. Wow, that is so true. And, and you know, we, we could talk about this for, for hours because it's so intriguing and it's so, so informative. So, so we, we have to have another discussion like this again, where we can just highlight some of the great things that you were doing, but before, before we wrap this up, um, any closing thoughts? Uh, we'll go with you first, Dom. Well, I think our team, you know, over time, we've really, we're almost like a building department for accessibility. I mean, we are plans examiners. We are building inspectors. There's design professionals on our team. Um, we have uh, an attorney going out, Paul, and a new uh, attorney coming in who worked with us for many years, um, who's coming back now to help us. But I think that we really see what people need in our practical experience doing our jobs really contributes to, it, it all feeds together. Our work in the field measuring apartment buildings, measuring ramps at stadiums, reviewing plans, make us understand what we need or what we need to change. Um, and I just can't tell you how cool that is to, to be involved with something like this and, and ultimately see things change to benefit our members. Well said, well said, Dom. And uh, Marsha, any closing thoughts? Well, I guess I, I'm going to take this opportunity to put out a call. Um, as I said before, the, the, you know, when you're working with the codes, you've got to a very short time in a meeting, in a hearing, to convince people about doing the right thing. And I'm going to have a hard road to hoe with this seating issue, I think. And I could use a couple of volunteers who would be willing to just tell their own story about how not having at least some other low tables in in a in a bar or a restaurant 
where you're the only person sitting at a low table, how that affects you and how that how that affects your your ability to socialize and have fun and enjoy yourself. And um, I don't need a hundred people, but I need a few people who can tell a good story. And fortunately, the, this next upcoming hearing is going to be virtual for the first time ever. They've always been they've always been in person. You had to be there physically to tell the story. And we have brought other people with disabilities. And depending on where the meeting is, we've brought people from various centers for independent living and, and other folks. But this time we could have people from anywhere uh, testify if you're willing. And so I'd, I'd love to hear from, you know, a few good folks who are, are not afraid to speak out. <laughs> I love it, Marcia. And what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, M.Maz at accessibility-services.com is one of my email addresses. And I also have a United Spinal address, M.Maz at unitedspinal.org. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Marsha. And I'm sure, I'm sure our members are like, yeah, let's, let, let's do it. Let me reach out <laughs> to Marsha. That's awesome. Kay, before we let you go, what are some closing thoughts you'd like yeah, to share I mean, with I think us? we talked a lot about code and, and things like that, but I, I mean, just to circle back to Dom's point, I mean, the bulk of the work that we do is um, reviewing plans for accessibility concerns so we can highlight them before it's constructed and, 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 and eliminate those barriers because before they become structural, real, and permanent um, or expensive to remove. And then we also do um, inspections throughout construction um, so that we can kind of catch errors in the field because you have two types of accessibility problems. You have a design failure and you have an installation failure. And so during our plans examiner, you know, they'll look in and they'll see, okay, this is a design failure, let's fix this now. And then the people who are in the field, like myself that does inspections, and Dom does it too from time to time, um, we will call them out in construction and just say, your electrical receptacle is not in the location that the plan is dictating, you need to move it before you put in the drywall, before you put in the backsplash and all this expensive work. Um, and that's the bulk of the stuff that we do. And so, I really am proud of the work that we do in order to make sure that, you know, buildings built before the modern accessibility standards, there's barrier removal and there's ways to make it more accessible. But, you know, with every code change and with everything else, like things are building to be more and more accessible and more and more inclusive of people. Like, Paul, you were talking about your wheelchair size, your body size and everything else. I mean, initially it was built off of manual chair users. And now obviously there's scooters, there's power wheelchairs, there's people who are of short stature, there's people who are of tall stature. There's all these things where it's just sort of like the net, like there isn't one person who uses a wheelchair. There is so much body diversity attached to different mobility devices. And so as we are trying to improve the definition of accessibility over time, we are holding people accountable during those phases so that when it is open, there are as few barriers as possible, you know, so that it, it can be a golden standard. And, um, and I really enjoy the work that we do with like Port Authority where it's not just meeting the standard, it's exceeding them. And it's a lot of universities reach out to us because they're also making, you know, these commitments that this building will be there for the next 50 years and used for those 50 years. So how can we forecast how disability will be changing over time 
so that that building doesn't immediately become, you know, out of fashion by the time it's constructed in two years. And so I really enjoy the work that we're doing where it's forecasting as well as capturing the moment in time that we're in. And, uh, and, I, and I think we do a, a phenomenal job with it. You guys do. I mean, my hat's off and my wheels are off to all you. <laughs> Yeah, you guys do an amazing job, and and I'm so glad we had an opportunity to, to to chat about this more, so our members can just find out the great things that you do. But not only our members, but others too, who may want to say, "Hey, you know, I want to learn more." So let me reach out to them. And uh, uh, Dom, Marsha, and Kay, it's been great catching up with you and and talking with you guys. And and is there uh, a place on the website we can point once to, or just go to unitedspinal.org. What, what's the best way? So we do have um, our own website, but it is currently going through an update as part of the 75th anniversary um, where we will be um, doing that. So United Spinal is the, the main website is where you can find a lot of our COVID guidance and accessibility-services.com is where you can uh, link up with us. And so if you you want to reach out to us as you know member concerns there but majority of we use it kind of as a landing page for businesses to to uh to hire us for the service i love it i love it and and you heard it folks make sure you go to unitedspinal.org find out some of the great things don't forget 75 years building an inclusive Yay. world that's what we're all about and we'll talk to you next time on the united on Will's podcast. I'm your host, Paul Amadeus Lane. So happy to have you with us as we had an amazing conversation with some amazing people. Take care, folks. Stay well. And I love you all to life. Take care. Mm -hmm.